Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... I'm hoping for a positive future of early childhood education where the focus will shift away from hard assessments or labeling and grouping children in like, oh, here's the gifted program, here's like children who are struggling. Just a more adaptive system, more individualized learning, and really a closer communication between practitioners and researchers. It's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. I've got a special guest today who became a learning scientist in early childhood education through a non-traditional path. She grew up as a creative and artistic child in India and obtained her Bachelor of Science in Electronic Media. Her interest in pursuing a career in the film industry brought her to the U.S., where she pursued her Master of Fine Arts at the Academy of Art University. She then went on to work as a graphic game designer and user experience designer in the San Francisco Bay Area. Through her experience in educational games, she discovered the beauty of learning science and found her calling in early childhood education research. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Sonia Tivari, a PhD candidate in learning, design, and technology at Penn State University. In her research, she explores how children learn in informal environments using educational media and maker activities. She then uses her research insights to inform the design of creative learning environments, be it a classroom, a summer camp, or a maker workshop. If you are a parent, you will learn a plethora of educational media resources to help you choose and design the best learning activities for your children at home. If you are an industry designer, you will be inspired and intrigued by Sonia's non-traditional journey that will offer you insights on how to explore and design a career path in game-based learning, both in formal and informal environments. And if you are a professor or a program coordinator in higher education, Sonia has a request and a call to action for you. When you are looking for a PhD student, please be open-minded and welcome people with different backgrounds. For example, a game designer will bring unique insights and perspectives into instructional design and help you make your research more relevant and engaging for our current and next-generation learners. It was such a delight to discuss with Sonia and unpack her creative journey and inspiring work. Tune in to learn from a designer turned learning scientist who wants to put a smile on the face of learners by designing resources that are useful, beautiful, playful, and funny. Let's dive right in. Hello, Sonia. Welcome to Impact Learning. 
Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite uh, childhood memory related to learning? I think the transition to high school was really memorable for me because in elementary school and middle school, I studied at a girls' convent where it was common for teachers to kind of hit children with a wooden ruler or slap them as a form of punishment for not doing their homework. So I had internalized all these labels that, oh, you're a weak student. And I thought that in terms of learning, that would determine the course of my life. But in high school, I met friends and teachers who pointed out that I had other talents and that I should let learning be based on things I'm good at, things I'm interested in, based on curiosity, rather than defining myself as a learner based on grades and scores and all these other metrics. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind me asking, what was the reason you were not uh, performing very well on all the other metrics, the tests and everything else? I think it's just that my approach to learning was different. And the traditional education system is so prescriptive that, you know, one size fits all kind of thing. So it wasn't that I was lacking in intelligence, but I, uh, the approach that I was given wasn't my natural approach to learning. So, for example, when I went on to film school and we would have, you know, we, we would test out different equipments like the microphone And I would just, you know, naturally be curious that, oh, what is the polar response and directionality kind of thing? Like, why does it sound better from one angle versus the other? And so just learning based on curiosity was natural. But if you gave me a textbook that says, oh, here is the structure of microphones, this is called polarity. So those were the kind of things that I wouldn't be able to learn and then take a written test on it rather than try it out and explore it, because it, it would be weird to study like a diagram of a microphone rather than use it. You were very much inspired by creativity and you wanted to learn things in different ways. What did you study at the university? So for my undergrad degree, I have a Bachelor of Science in Electronic Media. So we did like documentary film production and editing, screenwriting, direction kind of things. And then for my master's, I studied character animation at Academy of Art in San Francisco. So again, it was still like, you know, directing, screenwriting, storytelling, but using animation as a medium uh, instead of live action. Mm -hmm. When did you know that this was the path that you wanted to learn more and study more? I think I'll go back to that example of high school where, you know, my teachers, when they pointed out that, okay, you may not perform well in these traditional exams, but you have these other things such as, you know, participating in the school plays, being the president of the student body, or, you know, debates, singing, performing kind of things. So one of my teachers, economics teacher, Even though I failed like her class, she was the first one to congratulate me on my performances in school plays. And she said that, you know, this is a it's a career path, like you can pursue a degree in film production and media production, and it takes skills. So this is also a form of intelligence that maybe the school system isn't registering in their, uh, you know, traditional metrics. So she was the one who encouraged me to pursue this uh, degree in electronic media. 
I have to ask this question because you were uh, born and raised in India. Mm-hmm. I don't know all the different places. I know enough from the friends and uh, people that I have talked to. Mm-hmm. What did your parents think about the different path that you were interested in pursuing? Were they happy about it? Were they supportive? That's a great question, Maria. I think traditionally in India, STEM careers are preferred. So like you generally have more respect if you're, uh, you know, in, in medicine or engineering. So overall, it was frowned upon if someone, you know, like the stereotype of a starving artist, you, you'll be a bum if you, you know, take the creative pathway. But I was lucky that uh, my family was very um, encouraging. They really let me be and they recognize that you can't force someone to learn or excel long term. Uh, like, you know, you can be strict and let a child do well in one exam. But if that forceful kind of model was to continue all their life, they can possibly never be happy <laughs> that way. So they, they prioritize my happiness over whatever the social norm was. And for that, I'm really, really grateful. Mm-hmm. Now, you did your undergrad in India, mm-hmm. but then you did your master's in the U.S. What brought this trip, I guess? So it's a little bit of history. You know, like India got its independence in 1947. So our country at that time was still developing. And we only had like one school where they had animation as a specialization. And the professors there themselves did not have a lot of industry experience because the industry was still very new. And even before we got our independence in the U.S., there were animated films that had won an Oscar. So it was just a different timeline in both countries. So I really wanted to learn from people who had been in the animation uh, industry and had more experience, uh, which was lacking at that time. Like, I think right now there are just so many animation schools in India. But at that time, it was just the one. So when you completed your master's uh, in fine art, what kind of work did you want to do? I wanted to work in the film industry, but it was so concentrated in L.A. area. And my husband, he had a job in San Francisco Bay Area. So I had to figure out a way to feel fulfilled in a creative career, but limited by the geography. So Bay Area has a lot of game studios, and that's when I really got interested in just gaming in general. And so I started with entertainment games. Then I stumbled upon a few jobs that were more educational games. And that's where I really found my calling. I was like, oh, this is fulfilling. And they're, they're just it's so interdisciplinary. There, there's design, there's research, there's interacting with children and adults and just that feeling of being able to contribute uh, in, in many ways felt really good. And that is where I also met a research team who were basically doing some pre-research, like what games are needed, and then post-research that how well are these games doing. And that's when I, I knew that I wanted to get into that direction because that was exciting. Before we get to discuss the details in, you know, about your research mm-hmm. in learning design and technology, mm-hmm. I want to uh, take a pause for a second and consider all these different projects and uh, experiences you had as a visual designer, game designer. What are the skills 
and the learnings you developed that now they are helping you in your current work as a researcher and as a scientist? I think design in general is like grammar. You know, like once you understand the grammar, you're able to write poetry and story and, you know, so many other things. So I had a foundational sense of design, how to make things aesthetically pleasing, uh, what is more clear and understandable in the visual form. So that's the, the underlying grammar. And that architecture is the same for many design disciplines. So uh, most people, they start out with like graphic design and illustration, and then based on the demands in the industry, they, they kind of mold themselves in the, into the specific role. In my master's, I was doing animation, character design. So when I went to the game studios, that those were my top assets, being able to design characters and visualize the story, what would be the best visual style for a certain age group. So it's not just like, oh, if you're designing a game for children, just make the eyes bigger. It's not as like <laughs> as simple as that. But yeah, like being being able to mold the visual style for a particular age group and for a particular purpose was my key skill at that time. And then through game design, I also had to consider the content. So are we trying to teach something? Are we trying to uh, make the game addictive so that, you know, in the freemium model, people will be tempted to see what else uh, is in the game that looks cool or is interesting? So keeping those values in mind when I design. If you had to choose one word mm -hmm. to describe your approach to work, which word would you use? I'd say creative. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was thinking, you know, designer, mm -hmm. creator, maker, but I was more leaning towards after, you know, research what you've done. I was leaning more towards the creator and maker. Right. <laughs> But as you explained very well, and this is the first time I, I heard this explanation um, and description about design, you have developed the language, the grammar. Mm -hmm. So that's the design. Mm -hmm. But the actual, you know, the work that you are doing is that the creative aspect and the making aspect. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thanks. What uh, prompted you to start a PhD in learning sciences, specifically in learning design and technology at Penn State versus, for example, trying to gain some experience through work? Why did you want to go back to research? So I was already getting the work experience and through work uh, in one of the game studios, I found this research team, uh, which I explained before, like they were doing the pre and the post research. And in those discussions, I realized that research is so much more interdisciplinary than my current role as a game artist designing specifically characters. So I had a very, like I was a small fish in a big pond. I had a very specific role to design characters. So I wasn't thinking about the overarching game story or like the curriculum behind those educational games or those deeper, more meaningful questions. And not to minimize character designers, I think what, what the traditional game designers do is amazing. I just felt like because I am interdisciplinary by nature, it would be more natural for me to go on to a broader role where I could also design characters, but also think about the game more broadly and, and the purpose and the meaning behind it and try to dissect it and study it more deeply. 
Beautiful. So what is the scope of your research? For my dissertation and some of the initial research that I'm doing, it's understanding how children are inspired to make objects in real life inspired by media. So currently, most parents think that, oh, children are just, you know, like zombies rotting in front of the screen, as my mom would describe it, that, oh, I'm going to like take the TV off and you're always sitting here. So that's the main concern that most parents have. So my whole idea was that what if we were able to control the amount of time that we spend with media and use that as inspiration to be more active and make things hands-on in real life. So instead of just using it as, you know, a one-off thing that you watch media and it's done and you've wasted like several hours, instead of that, maybe watch for like a 20-minute episode, but then have so many ideas for the rest of the day. And an example is for young children, like if they see an episode of Curious George, where he's trying to predict the weather using like a windsock or keeping a weather journal, then to use that as inspiration to do those things in their real life that, you know, try to predict the weather for the day, for the week, and make an anemometer using paper cups and straws. So making simple things inspired by media rather than just passively watching it. And how do you assess within your research, how much are they learning? Or are they understanding enough the concepts and are they able to put them into practice? How do you do that in your research? So I try to look at the artifacts that they are creating and the conversations that they are having while they are making uh, these things. And qualitative research, again, it's not an exact science. So, you know, like unlike a survey, it's hard to give definitive measurement of their learning, but it's inferred, it's implied and I try to notice how they are framing the conversation that, oh, it's windy and I see that my anemometer is spinning really fast. So it must mean that it's really windy right now. And it looks like uh, in the next few hours, too, it might be windy. So those kind of conversations give me clues into their understanding. And with younger children, like under the age of like six or seven Sometimes they don't verbalize what they're understanding, but it doesn't mean that they're not taking anything away from it. So they they may not use a scientific term that the speed of the wind, but they can still notice that it's spinning faster. That might mean that it's windy. So they may not always verbalize it, but it's important to like the Montessori or Waldorf schools to, to at least expose them to these opportunities, and eventually they'll start piecing everything together. So whether you are a researcher or a parent, and I know you are both, what are the things you watch? And I understand that you cannot really measure, you know, in a scale Mm -hmm. of one to 10, but what are the things you watch that you know that they are engaged? They are not into a mode of what I call entertainment only, Mm But their, their brain is like activated enough so they can, they're learning. Right. So for, for young children, I, I try to look, fr- look from the lens of joint media engagement, which is like an adult or, you know, a parent or a teacher, older sibling interacts with children while they, they watch something. So it's not just like, oh, here, take your iPad. Don't see me till evening. <laughs> it's more like, 
you know, let's watch this together and then talk while watching the show. So those conversations are always fun to watch and their reactions to the media. Again, like going back to the Curious George example, maybe when George is struggling to predict the weather and he sees like dark clouds. And in my research, I observed that at that point, there was like a whole group of children watching it together. So they started pointing out that, hey, George, look, there are dark clouds. That must mean that it's going to rain. So those kind of like, you know, talking directly to the screen or to each other that, hey, you know, what do you think is going to happen now? So when, when children are talking to each other or with a grown-up who's facilitating the conversation, those are really interesting to me. And especially if they follow up on what they had seen earlier in the day in some other activity. For example, I have a friend whose child is very interested in nature cat and their parents are also very adventurous. They go on hikes. So they mentioned in their interview that, you know, whenever we are hiking or we're just walking around in the neighborhood, our child always refers back to the episode that, oh, I learned about changing seasons and the fallen leaves mean that, you know, it's fall and such and such. So how they refer back to the media in their everyday life, that is crucial to me. That shows that they were not just passively viewing something, but they're learning into real life. What is the actual environment that the children engage in the activity you described? Is that, let's say, kindergarten or is it informal learning environment? And is there a preference for one versus the other? I prefer the informal learning environment just because it doesn't seem prescribed that way. It just feels more natural. But I've done two experiments. One was in a classroom where I spoke to the teachers before designing an inter intervention. Uh, what are some topics that you think children are struggling with in the kindergarten classroom? Where do you need help? So to design intervention where there is a need. And so she mentioned that the kindergarten children were struggling with fractions and simple, like single digit addition and subtraction. So I planned an intervention around that. And I showed the classroom a, uh, an episode of Peg Plus Cat. It's a PBS Kids series on mathematics. And so Peg uh, is, is this little girl and she goes around uh, in the worlds of famous fairy tales like the Red Riding Hood or the Seven Dwarves. And so she's like adding and subtracting characters from these popular stories, like the three little pigs and three minus one is two kind of thing. So in the form of a story, she uh, describes this addition and subtraction and like through slices of pizza, simple fractions. And so after the children watched this like small 20 minute episode, then we had them play board games, which required, you know, adding or subtracting Lego bricks stacking on top of each other. So they were kind of like visually counting that, oh, it's three Lego bricks and now the, I have to knock off one. So there are just, you know, two more left. So they played a game which was more hands-on. They played with Lego bricks and made symmetrical constructions. So they were constantly counting. And they also had this prelude to this hands-on activity through the media. So this was an example of aligning it in the formal curriculum. The previous example I shared with, uh, was at a summer camp. 
where every day of the camp started with one theme or one episode. And for the rest of the day, children were outdoors or in the library, crafting, making things based on that theme. So one day was weather prediction, for instance. Another day was flowering plants. So they saw an episode of Cat in the Hat where they go and see how different creatures depend on flowering plants for survival. And then they went on to catalog flowering plants around the school campus. They use the iNaturalist app by National Geographic. So when you take a picture, it tells you the name of the plant or what season it thrives in, things like that. Both examples you uh, shared with us explain beautifully how they are learning and engaging and then how they are, I guess, internalizing and uh, using the concepts and everything they are learning in, you know, more hands-on, experiential way so they can actually apply what they learn. So I love, I love both examples. Is this the kind of design, because I know use your insights to guide the design of informal learning environments. Is this the kind of design that uh, you do or is there something in addition to that? I think this is what I, I would say this is what I'm doing right now. I, I really don't want to limit myself to a type of design. For example, for the purpose of that summer camp, I needed to design activities that were a nice follow up to the media. So I was using like existing resources like the National Geographic app. But then other times, for example, we did a module on Frida Kahlo's art and how she represented science in her art, like the ecosystem or interdependence of humans and nature. You see that in her art sometimes, but you don't link it with science. So for that particular activity, we not only read about her art, but also we assembled like paper puppets, Frida Kahlo's paper puppets, and like her flowering, uh, the flower crown had seasonal flowers. And so children had conversations around different flowering plants while also engaging in artistic activities. So I, I designed that paper puppet and all the cutouts. So sometimes I, I do that. And uh, other times I use just existing resources. Now you just answered this big question for me because you, you do the research and the uh, science part of, you know, of learning, mm-hmm. but then you have this artistic and art-related and creator-related experience, but skills also. So you can choose an app that everybody else can choose, but also you can create something that you can only create through the the eyes of of an artist and a designer. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something that uh, you've read a very nice article, which I will put in the notes. When you try to compare the game designer, who is a researcher, like yourself now, mm-hmm. and you compare uh, the researcher with the um, entertainment or hardcore, you know, game designer, which is sometimes called educational, but very rarely it is educational. Mm-hmm. We know why they do the work they do, because they try to promote addictive behavior and this is how they make money. Mm-hmm. My question for you is, because you've also been on the other side, as a researcher in game-based learning, What are the insights you can learn from the 
non-educational game designers that you can bring into your work to make it more engaging or more interesting? Are there any insights that you can bring into your work? I think just the the attention to detail in terms of design or just general respect for design that is in the industry, that is what I sometimes feel like is missing in academia. Uh, and I understand their perspective, like I understand their challenges as well. For example, uh, at a university, if a professor wants to create an educational game, they would either go for like departmental funding or have a grant and it's limited and you have to really distribute it in so many different directions. So design, and if you look at the budget of any educational game, design budget is the lowest and at the last. And that reflects in the visual quality. So, you know, educational games end up looking boring, even if like their content is really rich and research-based. But it looks so bad. And in this generation where children have, you know, so many subscriptions to like Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and all that, they are exposed to high quality design. So if you're asking them to make a choice to spend 20, 30 minutes of their time on something, they have this natural expectation that it will be as well designed as all the other media that they're exposed to. And when the quality of educational media doesn't match up, they are not interested in it. And again, like I said, you, you can't force someone to be interested that, hey, that's good for you. You know, even if it doesn't look good, it's amazing. So that kind of sales pitch doesn't work for children that do it just because it's educational, even if it looks super boring. So that's one takeaway that just, and I don't know how to resolve it because I do understand that with limited budget, it's hard to access high quality design because in studios, we have like 200, 300 game designers working on games sometimes, uh, and every one of them is really good. So to expect the same kind of quality with like one graduate assistant and like three other people, it's really hard to pull that off. So I understand why that happens. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point because it's also resources and availability. Mm -hmm. You also wrote another article, which somehow they are related. You talked about the importance of color mm -hmm. or the relationship between color and uh, learning. Mm -hmm. And if I can think of the textbooks and everything I had, you know, in every like elementary high school, of course I did, you know, I went to the university and I studied STEM and chemistry. So it was all black and white numbers <laughs> and lines. Very boring for you. <laughs> But I do remember, I think it was the first grade that we had at the book. And it was a story of a little girl, mm -hmm. which actually her, um, I remember her outfit was exactly, this, looks exactly the same color and everything that uh, with a uniform that uh, we were wearing in elementary school in Greece when I was, you know, growing up. Mm -hmm. And because she was, she looked like she had dark hair like me, she was, you know, she was wearing the same kind of uniform, I immediately related with her. Mm -hmm. But then everything, all of that, all the colors and the design and the storytelling went away and here comes the math and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we use color today to promote learning in a more uh, engaging uh, online digital environment? I think there are many businesses uh, in the education industry that are trying to address the same problem. For example, 
ABC yeah, ABC Mouse and all these like uh, subscription websites for children. That is what their goal is to provide education, which is also beautifully designed. But you're right that as children grow up and towards higher education, all this color and design disappears. And one way could be that when universities hire instructional designers, they should try to seek out uh, people with you know, my kind of background or other design industry background so that they can bring it that interdisciplinary culture and understanding and values into the ivory tower, which as, you know, traditionally they have been two separate entities that, you know, universities operate in certain way and design studios operate in another way. And what we need is a mixing of the culture and of the talent because traditional instructional designers understand instruction, but they may not always understand design the way it happens in the industry. And in the design industry, they may understand the design principles, how to make things look beautiful, but they may not understand how to integrate it in a curriculum or in the teaching and learning process. So we need to welcome more diverse voices in, in academia. I want to go back and talk about the informal learning environments mm -hmm. because I think they are becoming even more important since, you know, we uh, had the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So now a lot of learning is happening at home. So how do you see the informal learning environments? Are they becoming more effective platform? What are the things we need to pay attention to? I think right now it's it's frustrating for parents to figure that out on their own because this was an emergency remote situation. So like no one had time to prepare. Everyone was just thrown into this. But there are channels like uh, PBS Kids. I really appreciate that they have this transmedia suite. So they kind of curate all these media and follow-up activities on their website. So the parents don't have to spend time thinking about, oh, I just saw this. What could be some activity that I can do after this? So they have taken that uh, stress away from parents in a way that would be like simplifying the solution. You know, eventually people will need to find alternative childcare or alternative modes of play, alternative ways of engagement, which don't exist right now. Because even when I say that, oh, you need to facilitate for your children as they watch media. In theory, that's awesome. Like using the GME or the joint media engagement theoretical lens, that is amazing. But the reality of it is that parents right now are using it as a form of babysitting that, okay, while he watches for 20 minutes, I'm gonna type up my email. And if you're also spending time with them, then even those 20 minutes are gone. So I feel like in the future, you know, designers might come up with really different solutions. So, for example, automobile designers could think of a mobile classroom or library that reaches out to remote locations. Uh, maybe like textile and accessory designers could think of uh, new types of uniforms that are equipped with masks or disinfectants. Toy designers could think of preschools that are equipped with toys that are easy to disinfect or share or like play interactions that can be possible in a socially distanced way. Or like new media designers could think of environments where digital and physical realities kind of intersect. So right now it's science fiction, but eventually, you know, 
something like a hologram or something where you can be remote, but you can also experience uh, your peers in a different way, that something like that might show up. And, uh, you know, furniture designers could think of classroom furniture and at-home study desks that could make social distancing and hygiene easy. So all these like different disciplines might come together to to make learning different safer, accessible, even in a situation like the pandemic, if it shows up again for another reason, or maybe the schools are realizing that, oh, it's profitable to keep it low, you know, the the costs low by having a lot more courses offered online. So more and more universities are trying to make it a permanent model that, you know, a, a big percentage of our courses will now be offered online. So yeah, I, I think that interdisciplinary kind of contribution from different design and learning disciplines will come up with solutions. In addition to educational media, you also study different maker activities. Mm -hmm. When I think of maker activity, the first thing that comes to mind is an analog, a hands-on, mm -hmm. like a craft and art kind of workshop, let's say that I attend mm -hmm. and I learn how to design or how to draw, and also there is interaction with the other participants, and uh, I also touch a lot of things. So when you we take this now mm -hmm. and we make it digital, online, what are the things we need to consider as we design, you know, the, the experience? What are the challenges? What are the things we need to adapt when we create a digital maker activity? I think the allowing the freedom to the maker to explore, that is the beauty when it happens in real life, hands on, like you're able to examine things before you actually do something with it. It's like a bunch of Lego bricks, you know, you can assemble it any way you please. So that kind of tinkerability, uh, when it's offered online, it becomes more enjoyable. And, uh, you know, this whole maker movement that started in, in San Francisco with the Maker Fair and people just made all sorts of things and blurred the line between technology and crafting and just like bringing so many things together. For example, one of the activities that I teach at Maker Fairs is to design a, a bookmark that lights up. It has a LED light. So uh, children are able to take like conductive thread to make that circuit and connect it with a battery and a small uh, LED light that can be sewn into felt fabric. So they are learning about electronics and they're making a really cute bookmark that they can actually use. And again, like in informal learning that has the opportunity to discuss a more complex subject like electronics with children who have had identity issues like me, you know, like internalized labels that, oh, I'm not good at science. So even those children, when they're presented with uh, opportunities like these to craft something, but which also has uh, an educational element to it, it's an uh, easy way, like low floor entry into the world of more complex topics. Let's switch topics now and talk about storytelling. Mm -hmm. So storytelling is... Uh critical and essential, you know, when you make a film, when you write a book, perhaps a fiction book, but they are usually outside of education and outside of learning. 
through your eyes, because again, you have very different experience, how can we leverage storytelling more in learning design and educational experiences? I think that's a great question, Maria. And I think uh, there are many researchers who are trying really hard to make that happen. I'm, I'm recalling a research by Yasmin Kafai and when she does uh, making related activities uh, with uh, youth, uh, she always allows them to come up with the project idea on their own. So, you know, even though they're supposed to use electronic components to make something, that something could be an object that is personally meaningful to them. So it could be like if you are from a certain culture, you can create a cultural artifact. Like, for example, I'm from India. We celebrate Diwali. So I would design LED lights kind of uh, craft activities during Diwali if the group of students are all celebrating that festival or, you know, during Christmas, having like a Christmas tree type of craft that can have a lot of electronic components. Or there are people who come from certain tribes and they want to recreate some cultural artifacts with our, which are enhanced with technology. Could be a, a screen projection or like some motorized moving components. Uh, or it could be a family diorama that captures the history of a marginalized community. So whatever is meaningful to you using technology just to enhance it or to represent it, it's like owning a paintbrush does not make a painter. You know, what you do with that paintbrush and how you represent your story are two different things. So technology can be a tool and then the storytelling is what uh, humanizes the research. Your comment reminded me that um, we did not talk about, I guess, the impact of culture and age on how children engage with educational media. What do, do we know? What have you found through your research, if these are things that you have explored? So in terms of research, I found that there are definitely age-level differences for, for younger kids, just the amount of options that are available to them is so vast that, you know, curation makes a difference, that what exactly are you exposing them to would make a difference. For older children, I kind of feel sorry that they don't have as many resources as they deserve. And that is when their life becomes more stressful and complicated. And through my lived experience, like outside of research, uh, having been exposed to different cultures, I would say that, again, it's hard to prescribe one way of learning across countries or cultures. For example, India has such a big population that in elementary school, we had like 70 children in one classroom and just one teacher. And in the U.S., it's like 15, 20 at the most. And then there's like one teacher, one paraprofessional, there are substitute teachers and like teachers in training who come in to help. So it's just a different ratio. So I'm not saying that it was right that I was hit by a ruler, but I can see where that frustration of the teacher came from because it's like 70 children and she's supposed to somehow manage all of them. So she was bound to like lose her mind and do bad things. So uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I can see where those problems come from. So 
learning is always situated. So whatever the challenges are in that particular situation, they need to be addressed by understanding in a more you know ethnographic way, really understand the culture and problems at a deeper level rather than, you know, being that typical like obnoxious researcher from the West who would travel the world and say, hey, let me fix you. Let me fix your system. So you really need to immerse yourself in someone else's culture before you can make a recommendation that applies to everyone. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I know India is very diverse Mm -hmm. because, you know, South, North, East, West, Mm -hmm. but also if you consider, you know, uh, East Coast and West Coast and North and South in the United States, there is also a lot of... uh, I guess, diversity in different aspects of what we believe about education and learning and different aspects that you talked about. Mm-hmm. So you are a parent. Mm-hmm. You have a son. How old is your son? He just turned eight. Oh, <laughs> is it easier or how does uh, being a parent help you with your research and your work? It is definitely helpful. I always joke that he is like subject zero <laughs> in my research. <laughs> So uh, I definitely get like a personal sense of uh, how that research might look like when I actually take it to the research setting. But in other ways, it does not because, you know, every child is different. So something uh, like an intervention that I try out with my son at home may not work that well when I scale it and have many participants with so many different interests. Uh, And again, like, like I said, learning is always situated. So like my son's personality, the way I teach him, that dynamic does not carry over in other settings where there are more teachers and more children and, uh, you know, other things involved. I just think that I have more respect for what I do. Like I'm cautious about the impact that it could have uh, because before I had my son, I had a level of separation from my work that, oh, this is work and that is my life. And now they've kind of overlapped so much and I realize the importance of what I'm doing or what kind of impact it might have long term. Let's look uh, at the future now, the future of early childhood uh, learning and education. What are the trends? What are the big opportunities we need to consider in early childhood education? I think that the Montessori and Waldorf type of philosophies are making a comeback. I mean, they've always been there, but they're gaining more popularity. And when I was living in San Francisco Bay Area, it was a really like funny observation that all these like tech billionaires, they're sending their kids to schools where there's like no technology or like no screen time and everything is hands on, no textbooks. So it kind of have to pay to have fun and learn in a nice way. And if you can't afford it, the public school system will give you the same old traditional model. So there's like a big economic disparity in accessing the great kind of education that everyone in the early childhood education research community vouches for. So it's hard to access that. So I feel like in the future, even at a broader level, even in public schools, that kind of mindset will I hope that it will get there. And for example, in the school district here, they have a policy that until fourth grade, they won't have any homework more than like 15, 20 minutes. And even in fourth grade, it's it's very little homework. 
And it's really in middle school that things gradually start picking up, which is, I, I think it's a beautiful way of allowing children the freedom because I grew up with a lot of stress from carrying a heavy backpack and assignments and grades. So I'm hoping for a positive future of early childhood education where the focus will shift away from hard assessments or labeling and grouping children in like, oh, here's the gifted program. Here's like children who are struggling. Just a more adaptive system, more individualized learning and really a closer communication between practitioners and researchers. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit more about that, the researchers and the practitioners, mm -hmm. because I'm thinking, listening to you, that access to learning and education is one topic, but then, as you said, it's actually quite expensive to send your uh, child to school that they can have this experiential and game-based and play-based learning. Should mm -hmm. or could researchers like yourself you know, the right resources and grants and everything to make that happen. Should you be able to create some of these game-based uh, activities we talked about and offer them more of an open access or free? So classrooms and teachers who are not designers like you and they're not researchers, they can access them and bring them to their classroom. Is this an unmet opportunity? I would say that there are a lot of people who are trying to address this gap. And generally what happens is, especially in college towns like State College, where there's Penn State University, there is definitely a collaboration between researchers, even like my my advisor, Dr. Susan Land. She collaborates with like local schools and summer camps and all these places to design interventions. So and, and it's same, I think, in Bay Area. Stanford and UC Berkeley do the same thing. They have partnerships with local schools. So that happens. The, the only challenge is the maintenance of those resources because in game studios, what happens is once the game is ready, every year in order to host it in the app store, you need to pay a certain amount. You have to constantly update it every time there's a software update. So in academia, it's hard to maintain those games long-term because as soon as the grant money runs out, no one has the time and energy to continue updating it. So th there are many interventions. They are just short-lived uh, for the duration of the research. So there's a gap there. There's a yeah. gap that we need to bridge, the maintenance aspect, which thank you because I, I did not think about that aspect. I was thinking more that maybe we need to do more at the beginning, but it's more about the transition and the maintenance aspect of it. Right. And also just the so the research is generally very specific, like mine was on weather science. So I maybe have a few games that help children, you know, predict weather or something. But then when teachers try to integrate it in their curriculum, they have such a vast thing. So every year they're only able to find maybe one or two topics where they can, you know, find a game that naturally fits in their curriculum. So when I say the collaboration between researchers and practitioners, it also means that reaching out to teachers and really trying to understand from them like a needs analysis that where do you need help and where can, be most, can we be most helpful rather than designing something and then trying to shove it somewhere, you know, that, oh, we designed this, use it. So instead of that, asking teachers first, that approach might be more helpful. Mm -hmm. 
And then something that you talked about earlier, how do we train grad students, whether it's master's, PhDs, how do we create people like you? So then, <laughs> and then, and then how do we give them the career opportunities as instructional designers, but not the traditional aspect, the curriculum, only more of the artistic and creative aspect of the design that I think you are bringing to the table. How do we make sure that these people have a path? How do we make sure that these kind of skills now are becoming more mainstream or more frequent? I think that would be like a silent pressure that I bear, <laughs> that yeah. I have to be successful enough that other people like me would want to do it. Otherwise, they'll be like, ah, look at what Sonia did to her life. So I kind of have to <laughs> uh, yeah. prove that there are opportunities because unlike in other careers, like, you know, if, if you're a medical student, you know, you'll be a doctor, you'll have such and such job. In creative careers, it's always evolving, like the landscape is always shifting. So there's no one definitive path. But there, are, like I said, because it's the grammar, there's so much that you can do with it. And so many places where you can apply your design skills. So, for example, user experience design, like 10, 15 years ago, that did not exist as a field or it existed, but with like other names. Now, like all of a sudden, most of the UX designers were other designers, like product designers, graphic designers, web designers. There's no one who started off as a UX person. So I think this is a strong career path for people who are adaptive and who do not fear change and who have this view of design as grammar that can be molded and applied to whatever else that they are doing. Sounds to me you need to create a school, whatever. I don't know what's going to be the name of the school to train <laughs> people, to train people, but not only of the tactics, you know, like, not only, okay, you can do these five things and they work, like train the mindset, you know, people who are willing to learn, but, and then they can, you know, you can start creating a generation of people that have the, the knowledge, the experience and the insights to go and help different classrooms and different places. And also design programs, you know, to do at home and with the parents and in formal environments. But to me, it seems like this, there is some kind of school or infrastructure that needs to be built to further cultivate this kind of career path. I think, Maria, since your listeners are, a lot of them are also uh, professors, I would say one thing they can do is when they're looking for PhD students, they could welcome people with different backgrounds because I, when I turned in my applications for the PhD programs, I was rejected from many places. And I really appreciate that my advisor saw uh, that connection that, okay, maybe she's from the game design industry, but now she's trying to uh, work on educational games. And that could be a nice thing. Just welcome diversity because it's ironic that we say learning sciences is interdisciplinary but then we don't welcome other disciplines. So that could be one way. <laughs> Very well said. That's the, let's say the first step that anybody can do that and then start creating more uh, paths like Sonia's path in different areas and in different, you know, cultures and different areas. Very, very well said. Thank you for that. My favorite question, what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? 
I'll just say I've been thinking about this question a lot since my uncle passed away. He raised me. And I guess like once you see death up close, you get your priorities right and you start thinking about impact more deeply. <laughs> so I'd like to leave my mark, I think, by designing resources that are useful, beautiful, playful and funny. Like they bring a smile on the face of learners because I feel like there's just so much stress involved in academia, like students trying to make it or prove themselves. And in, in that attempt to prove themselves, there's just so much toxic stuff that goes in there that if I can provide some learning resources that take some of that stress away and help the learner feel like it's fun, especially when it's a topic that would be otherwise really challenging, then I'll consider my mark made in this lifetime. Beautiful. Thank you so much for uh, coming uh, to the podcast and sharing your journey and for all the creative and artistic work you are doing, in addition, of course, with your research in early childhood education. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.